Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. These statements, quite frankly, are very, very damaging to him. Check your privilege, or he takes on a whole new meaning with this guy. And these are clearly classified documents. They're marked classified. They belong to the U.S. government. Thinking it in his head to declassify it, that would be a obscenely reckless way to handle declassification because no one else would know. It doesn't change the fundamental argument, the other argument, that these documents are not his. Donald Trump has now found himself in a whole heap of trouble over this audio tape that is now in the hands of the Department of Justice uh, about the classified documents. We're going to get to that in a second. But first, we got a great show for you today. We're going to be talking with Congressman Maxwell Frost. I also want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening. And uh, tell us what you think. We'd love to hear your comments. You can email us at backroomandy at gmail.com. Also, if you like the podcast, follow and subscribe. And uh, this way you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So let's get right into it. Trump. Uh, the Department of Justice has this audio tape, which consists of Donald Trump talking to interviewers who are writing a book about Mark Meadows, his former chief of staff. And Trump brags about having a document pertaining to a potential attack on Iran. And he says, I'd love to show it, but I can't because basically I know when it comes to the possession and distribution of classified documents like this. There are a lot of restrictions and laws, et cetera, et cetera. And basically what that does is it undercuts his entire defense because to date, he's argued that he either didn't know he had classified documents, or if he did, that he magically declassified them all before he left the White House. Yeah. Last night, actually, he was on Sean Hannity for a 44-minute town hall session. And again, Sean Hannity tried to throw him a lifesaver. And he again said, oh, yeah, no, I declassified, could declassify, whatever I wanted. And Sean Hannity actually looked like a journalist for like eight seconds. And finally, he's like, let's move on. Yeah. Every legal analyst that I've seen over the last several days has said he's he just screwed himself big time because candidates and politicians lie, but tapes don't. And he's admitting intent. This is a problem with him, which is why his legal team is in such disarray, because he is the worst client in the history of the law. Yeah, he can't keep his mouth shut is the number one thing that any defense attorney would tell you. Don't open your mouth and talk about this at all. Yeah, but he can't stop. Whether he's on CNN or on Fox, whether it's a town hall, whether it's an interview, whether it's a truth social post, it's his, his id. His id is in absolute control. And every time his id talks, it just gets him further and further into deep shit. He's already indicted in New York on 34 felony counts. He's staring down the barrel of another indictment in Georgia in the summer. He's perhaps days or weeks away from at least the Mar-a-Lago documents indictment. He is most likely going to be indicted on J6 as well. Um... If I get a parking ticket, I'm fucking terrified. <laughs> like, oh my God, I got to pay the ticket. Like, can you imagine having to like battle four legal fronts at the same time? And this is after, after you've already been found liable for sexual abuse. Do you think that he's worried though? Like, do you think that like he, he stays up at night and nope. he goes, oh God, I'm so fucking screwed. Yeah, I don't think so either. 
I, I don't think he has any fear of being convicted on any of these things. I don't think his brain works like anyone in this room's brain works. Uh, you know, your parking ticket or whatever kind of thing that you were facing, you'd be losing sleep. I think he believes that he will be president and none of this is going to matter. See, I... You know me, I'm not afraid to make predictions. Uh, I actually came in the studio today with two boxes of chocolate. <laughs> from, <laughs> Thank you, from, Andy. <laughs> from from, from Samuel's Sweet Shop in Rhinebeck, New York. Samuelsweetshop.com. Um, and I lost a bet. I said that Ron DeSantis wasn't going to run for president. Now, now, technically, I could argue that given the way he's been behaving the last two weeks, he's actually not running <laughs> He's, he's running from the presidency and Donald Trump, but uh, it's a nuanced argument. I'm not going to get into it. I pay up my debts. But when it comes to Trump, I have to say I'm still trying to figure out what the fuck is in that guy's mind. Jen, I, to answer your question, I just don't know. Okay. Well, thank you for accepting that answer. <laughs> Well, I don't think anybody knows, and that's, and I think that's been the well, Matt um, knows. Well, of course, Matt knows. No, for I definitely sake. do not know. I, I just think it's if you looked at various cult leaders in history and tried to figure out what was in their head, I don't think you could tell. I think Trump and Trumpism is going to be studied in universities for the next several hundred years and beyond in terms of how someone like Trump was able to actually become one of 45 people to lead this country to command our military, the greatest military in the world, how to explain Trumpism, why people today still want him their president, no matter the criminality, the treason, the pathological lying, the sociopathy, none of that matters. Why doesn't it matter? I, I don't understand it. Somebody last night on TV was saying something like, if you're still a liberal predicting what is going to happen with Trump, <laughs> you need some serious help. <laughs> I have said this before, and I'll say it again. You can never, ever, ever count this man out, ever. Yeah, I think you're right. And I don't understand the grip that he has on way smarter, more powerful people than him who could dump his corrupt treasonous ass in a heartbeat. Because people have their own agendas and they don't care about anything else but the few things on their agendas, like the Supreme Court, tax cuts for rich, or culture wars, and all they're looking at is that. They overlook every other quality that he has. So let's talk about uh, 2024. It was a busy week. We saw Pence, Chris Christie make their announcements. Uh, so now we have those two and uh, Tim Scott and Nikki Haley and Sununu's flirting with making an announcement and Youngkin was flirting with it as well. And, you know, DeSantis is out there on well, the campaign trail. Angry. Angry. Um, he Asked somebody yesterday if they're blind because they <laughs> asked them a question. That's nice. Be a nasty douche and make fun of the disabled at the same time. That's a great way to expand your base outside of Florida. I can't make sense of Chris Christie running. He has absolutely less of a chance even than Pence, I think. I do believe that he'd love to rehabilitate his reputation because he was Trump's lapdog after the election. And that totally went against the narrative of him being this tough guy. So I think he can regain back some cred. I don't think he can. He was on Trump's transition committee. He was Trump's uh, debating partner. People have a short memory, though. 
especially in the Republican Party. Agree. I personally, I would love to see him bitch slap Trump on a stage, but these guys are talking about not doing debates. They're all a bunch of cowards. They don't want to face each other. DeSantis hardly talks about Trump. He talks about Biden like there's like there's no Trump. Like he's got to get past Trump before he gets to Biden. Huh? I'm not even sure Trump will waste his time attacking him because there's no reason to. He's never going anywhere. And unlike Tim Scott or Nikki Haley, who might be running for vice president, he obviously isn't running for vice president because Trump wouldn't wouldn't right. pick him in a million years. Yeah. So let's talk about the debt ceiling. Thankfully, we are not going to default, although here's what Donald Trump says about default. You once said that using the that using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge uh, just could not happen. You you said that when sure. you were in the That's Oval Office. That's when I was president. To, so why is it different now that you're out of office? Because now I'm not president. <laughs> the U.S. defaulting would be massively consequential well, for it's, everyone it's, in this room, for all of you. You don't know. It's psychological. It's really psychological more than anything else. And it could be very bad. It could be maybe nothing. Maybe it's a, you have a bad week or a bad day. You don't know. You just don't know. No, actually, we do know. Every economist said it would be a catastrophe for us to default on our debt. But who better to love default and bankruptcy than our former president? Mm. Never met a bankruptcy. Never met a Chapter 11 that he didn't like, right? Maybe that informs his decision about how yeah. the debt ceiling works. Thankfully, he was irrelevant in these negotiations because no one listened to him. And we saw actually what people who knew what they were talking about predicted from the beginning, which was they would negotiate a deal. What we didn't know is how unbelievably better Biden would do than McCarthy, because what we saw is essentially he destroyed them. And all of the crazy right wingers are saying that Biden ate their lunch. And of course, this is their senile person who can't even, you know, walk. Right. But he's apparently able to negotiate them into nothing. That was nothing. sandbag. That was sandbag. <laughs> you got to love Joe. No, you're right. And I want to say to the Democrats out there who continue to talk about Joe Biden should not be running. He's too old. He's too this. He's too that. This guy is the most productive first-term president at least in modern history, or perhaps in the entire history of this country. Yet again, another major bipartisan deal, whether it's infrastructure or it's chips or it's the debt ceiling, time after time after time, he proves that his experience all these decades pays off. I mean, he promised bipartisanship and he's delivered on that. I just think it's so self-destructive and foolish for Democrats to play into this Republican narrative of he shouldn't be running. He absolutely should be running. He's the best person for the job right now. He's doing an incredible job. And I think that I 100% agree with you. And I think that Hakeem Jeffries did a fantastic job with his analysis and following in Nancy Pelosi's footsteps as Speaker of the House. He looked solid and strong and was able to deflect uh, all that Republican crap. Yeah. And again, to your point, it's like because he's so successful and productive, all they could talk about is his age yeah. and his senility and mental acuity or lack thereof. So he tripped over a sandbag, which, by the way, what the fuck was a sandbag <laughs> doing? It's like, hi, I'm the president. I'm about to turn left and walk away. Yeah. Boom, sandbag. You have to like, question the Secret Service on that yeah. one. Yeah. What was that? Was that sabotage? How is a sandbag 
standing next to the president of the United States. Yeah. But are we forgetting how Trump walked down the ramp of the helicopter at West Point yeah. and, and, and yeah. looked like he was 150 years old? Yeah. Or, or Very he, slippery. It was very slippery. Very slippery. Or when um, he stumbled another time, which is all over the internet now. You know they're afraid of Biden, terrified of Biden, when all they can talk about is his lack of mental acuity or his age. I mean, today... 390,000 jobs were created in May versus, yeah. I'm sorry, 350 versus I think 190,000 expected. This economy is on fire. Everything is on fire. He's doing a fantastic job. Uh, let's get to our winners and losers. My winners are Biden and McCarthy for finding a debt ceiling compromise. And my losers, President Trump, whose luck seems to have reverse shifted with the recent classified document evidence. My loser is Kevin McCarthy because he was just destroyed in that negotiation in terms of what he said he was going to accomplish. My winner is the Sackler family because the decision by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals will shield them from any future civil opiate lawsuits in exchange for $6 billion in funding for opioid programs. And this has major ramifications for corporate misconduct around the country. My winner is Joe Biden. You just heard me say why. My loser, Ron DeSantis, whose campaign continues to implode. All right, that gets us to the weekly rant. Let's talk for a minute about those absolutely moronic, delusional, and let's be honest, homoerotic as fuck memes of Trump's head photoshopped onto a young, super buff, chiseled, macho, muscular, alpha male body, which is brainwashed cultists constantly post on social media. Guys, I hate to break it to you, but this shit's really weird. I say this to the magus. When you choose one of those different bodies for Trump, you're essentially saying you hate the way he actually looks. Otherwise, you'd have used his real image. You therefore are admitting he's in terrible shape that physically he's an embarrassment, repulsive even, a truly unhealthy specimen who cannot run or ride a bike like, you know, the very fit old Joe. But let's be crystal clear. Trump is not Rocky, Rambo, Sly Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Marvel superhero, a brave warrior, a badass soldier, or a war hero. He's an old, obese, grossly out of shape, five-deferment, draft-dodging coward, who hid behind his rich, well-connected daddy to avoid Vietnam, while other, and dare I say, real men, sacrificed life and limb to defend and protect America's beloved democracy, to protect his freedom. While these brave young men and women went off to war, Captain Bone Spurs stayed behind, only to years later smugly claim that the dangers of sexually transmitted diseases from being a promiscuous male slut was his, quote, personal Vietnam. I just told you what Trump, Trump isn't, so now I'll tell you what he is. He's a whiny, pissy, little, incessantly complaining, woe is me, I'm treated so badly, snowflake, who wouldn't know real strength, real toughness, real courage, real balls, if they smacked him in his orange head. All right, let's get to Representative Maxwell Frost. Maxwell Alejandro Frost is the U.S. Representative for Florida's 10th Congressional District. Elected in 2022 at the age of 25, he's the youngest and first Gen Z member of Congress. He sits on the powerful Committee on Oversight and Accountability and the Committee on Science, Space, and Technology. As a young Afro-Latino, he brings a fresh progressive perspective to an institution formerly out of reach for young, working Black and Latino Americans. He's previously held leadership roles at ACLU, and March for Our Lives, and has made gun reform a top priority. 
He is also focused on housing affordability, healthcare, abortion rights, LGBTQ plus rights, voting rights, transportation, justice reform, climate change, and more. Congressman, welcome into the back room. Thank you for having me. So I want to get into uh, the business of politics in a second, but I want to just peel back the onion layer a bit, uh, go back in time to childhood, but you're 26 years old, so it's not been that long. Tell me about little Maxwell Frost growing up, maybe even in the single digits. Like, was politics <laughs> on your radar? Did you give a crap about any of this stuff or you know not really very much at a surface level uh i you know my dad is a one of the dads that uh you know yells at the news and so i I was always aware of kind of things going on and i would go into my elementary school and try to debate people (laughs) on politics you know once a month or something but uh you know seeing like barack obama on tv and uh, the way he made me feel and everything. I think that was one of the first points where I felt inspired by something. I have some random political memories. The first political rally I went to was a John Kerry rally uh, when I was in elementary school in Kissimmee. My mom took my sister and I, and I remember this specifically. My mom's a teacher. Um, so we are going through security and she gets stopped and pulled aside and they pull out a knife out of her purse because she, they had to cut a birthday cake the before in class. And so it was a whole thing. And they took the knife and then we went in. But that's always a joke that I bring up to my mom. You brought a knife to the John Kerry rally. <laughs> that's a good legacy to have, I guess, as long as it didn't end up with prison, prison time. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a butter knife. So, you know, nothing crazy. And I know you got active in your mid-teens. That's when you started to get ignited with, personal passion for various issues. Was that basically the first time that you decided that, hey, I have an interest in this stuff and maybe even want to spend the rest of my life doing some of this? Yeah, exactly. You know, it had always been an interest, but it was never uh, something that I thought would be my career. And I think there's a few reasons for that, but I was very, you know, I'm one of those kids that I'd watch a movie and then I'd want to do whatever the movie you know, was doing, you know, so I kicked around many different things. I wanted to own a theme park. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be this, like, you know, all all other kids. When you watch Goodfellas, what happened? Yeah, right. (laughs) So, you know, I was always switching around. And when I got into the high school, I knew I either wanted to be a musician full time because I went to an arts uh, school. And so that was a big part of my life. Um, or, um, go into the military. And I actually really wanted to go in the air force. My dad was in the air force. My dad's dad was in the air force and I watched a few good men. So I wanted to be a JAG officer. And that was for a while, that was like my, the, the dream of mine for the longest, everything really changed when I was 15. And I, um, learned about the, the shooting that happened in Sandy Hook before jazz band concert. And I actually went to the memorial here in dc it was like my second time in dc first or second time and getting to meet the families getting to learn about um what advocacy really is you know i was here for like four days and we did um, a lot of lobbying meetings and i remember the last day sitting across and being around this pool with all the kids who had lost family members in that shooting and seeing six and 16 year olds with the demeanor of you know 60 year olds crying over their siblings who were murdered for going to school really changed everything about my life. And that's where I committed myself to fighting for for a better world. And you were involved in a shooting. 
Yeah. So I, you know, the, it's a very messed up irony that a lot of people who get into this movement, not because they were personally impacted by a shooting, but because they believe in the cause years later, a lot of times will be impacted by a shooting because of how much this happens. For me, I got involved at 15 and then, um, in Halloween, Halloween, like three or four years later, I'm like downtown Orlando, the whole thing becomes a big party. And it's, you know, I was right next to a duo of guys who were arguing. One took out a gun and started shooting and we all had to run away, literally hundreds of us running away. And I remember just kind of shaking it off that night with my friends and just kind of moving on because um, we didn't make much of it. And it wasn't until a few years later that I was sitting around, like I was in a round table with the gun violence survivors, not as a survivor. I never counted myself as a survivor. And one of them was talking about a situation that was very similar to mine. And I had just realized that, wow, you know, the way we think about surviving a shooting is we think about mass shootings. But the fact of the matter is gun violence manifests itself in many different ways. And that was the time where I really said, wow, I survived the gun violence that night. And not only did I survive it, but the hundreds of people who ran away also survived it. Um, and uh, you have to have that kind of holistic uh, interpretation and, and, uh, and vision of how this issue impacts people on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. Why do you think we have such a gun violence mass shooting problem in this country? You know, there's two things I always think about. One is there's this culture aspect, which I think is important. We do have a gun culture and et cetera, and that is unique to the United States. It's a little different from other countries. But it really boils down, I think, at the end of the day, when we talk about our inability to pass common sense gun reform comes from corporate money and specifically the gun lobby. Uh, the gun lobby using its money and influence to push narratives, to continue to push the, the gun culture in the country, and to buy out politicians who were unable to pass simple things like background checks, which we still don't have universal background checks in this country. Um, it really boils down to that money being involved in politics and outside of politics and our culture, and it's created the conditions that we see now. You would think that with all the violence, all the shootings, and the fact that Gun violence is not a partisan thing, right? You can be a Republican and your mother can get killed in a supermarket. You can be a Republican and your child gets shot in a school. You would think we yeah. would all recognize the direct correlation between gun violence and lax gun legislation and gun restrictions. But it's that mentality of it's not the guns, right? It's not the guns. Do you think we're ever going to get past that? I do think we're going to get past it because I do believe we're going to end gun violence in this country. But there's a lot that needs to be involved in this conversation. I think there's problems on both sides of the aisle on this, to be honest. Uh, the problem with you know the Republicans is that after every mass shooting, we hear the same talking points. Most of them really insult the intelligence of everybody. you know. Um, and on top of that, they like to pick one issue, mental health, and kind of use it to pigeonhole the entire conversation to just talk about mental health and not talk about the guns and not talk about the conditions. All of that's important. And then on the Democratic side, I think often far too, you know, far too often we stay solely focused on mass shootings and um, gun regulation, which again, the guns are a huge part of the problem, but we also need to talk about the other aspects, which are conditions and everything else. What I often say is if you're gonna be the gun violence person, you're also going to be the climate person. You're also going to be the poverty person. You're also going to be the healthcare person. Because what we realize is when you dig into this issue, you recognize only 1% of gun violence 
is mass shootings. I don't say that to diminish mass shootings. I say that because I want people to understand how big this problem is. Just think about how big of a deal and the devastation that a mass shooting brings. And just knowing um, that uh, we, uh, there's just so much more to the issue that we need to talk about. Mental health is 100% a part of it. But when you look at the numbers, you realize, oh, folks with serious mental health conditions are actually more likely to be shot, not shoot someone. Right. So there's a lot of twisted narratives around, you know, on, on multiple sides of this issue that make it difficult to have a good conversation. And at the end of the day, when we lose over 100 people a day due to gun violence, when over 300 people are shot a day, um, we need these comprehensive solutions that'll help us have a better world. And that's conditions of our people, it's healthcare, and it's the guns. Mm -hmm. I think you're 100% right to your point, the fact that gun violence is the number one killer of our kids now. That's not because of mass shootings. That's just gun violence period. Yep. Um, exactly. But I do have to push back a little and say like, yes, it's a both sides issue, but there seems to be this completely irrational obsession with guns by the right oh, beyond, yeah. beyond oh. just anything that a sane person can even begin to comprehend. I, I don't know how you get around that. It's just like a like their fundamental right to own a gun and guns and guns and guns. It's just beyond like uh, a normal conversation, a rational conversation at this point. Yeah, and when I talk about both sides, you know, you had asked the question about the uh, um, about the the culture aspect and everything like that, and the, the way we talk about the issue. But yeah, when it comes down to common sense gun reform, I mean, you know, the majority of Democrats are for that and want to see it done. And actually the majority of Republicans are also for common sense gun reform, but not the majority of Republican politicians. And that's where the money um, plays such right. a big role in what we see. Um, but you know, the Republican party, this is what they do, right? They like to find wedge issues and they like to focus on them to turn out voters and to essentially you know, crowd themselves as the defender of that right or the, 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 you know, the, the protagonist in that story. We see the same thing happening on many different issues. We see it happening right now with Disney and DeSantis and wokeism and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, it used to be more, um, you know, gay marriage. And now, you know, our country's evolved on that a little bit. Now we're hearing about trans people in bathrooms and like, you know, they pick these issues that they feel like they can blow them up to a big proportion and uh, and crown themselves the protagonist so that way they have something they can hold up. Because other than these issues, right, look at the Republican Party, they're the party of no. Right. I mean, look at what just happened with this debt ceiling. You know, we're here saying we want to fight for expanded protections for working families. If you look on the other side, what's their argument? Oh, no, 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 right? We want to we wanna scale back the good things that Democrats did over the past few years. And no is not a good message. And they know that. And so what they do is they hide that no under being fiscally responsible. And they know that's not enough. No one goes to the ballot box and says, fiscally responsible. Let me, but you know, the majority of Republican voters aren't doing that. You might have a group of them. So they need some hot button issues in which they can blow it up, crown themselves the protagonists, and get voters that way. And that's what we see happening with gun violence. What the issue that they bring up is that. People are coming for your guns. No one's coming for your guns. You know, no, no one's talking about going door to door and taking guns. The issues that we're talking about have to do with future purchases and ensuring that right now we do everything we can to make sure guns don't get in the wrong hand. Polling shows Americans are for that.
I'm going to ask you a tough question. Should we be c- coming for their guns, though? I mean, there was a ban on assault rifles back in the day. Why shouldn't there be a- another one now? I'm for a ban on assault weapons, but I, I don't think that I would categorize it as coming for someone's guns, right? The assault weapons ban bill does not include going door to door and taking the guns people already have. It has to do with future sales. And I think that's an important distinction because we're not we're not coming. I don't believe we should be talking about coming for people's guns. I, mm-hmm. I don't think it helps us. Putting yeah. aside the, the marketing aspect of it, should there be a ban on assault weapons when every single mass shooting, again, I understand your point about mass yeah. shootings, but there's just no logical reason for an average American to be possessing oh, yeah. and using a weapon of war. No, I'm I'm for I mean I'm one of the I'm one of the original co-sponsors of that bill for this Congress. It's something I fought for for the past, you know, decade of my life. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say an assault weapons ban is us coming for your guns. Right. Because again, you already have one. Right. This bill doesn't do anything to that. This is about the future sales and the way we conduct ourselves in the future as a country. And I a hundred percent am with you on that. I just would caution against saying this is us coming for your guns because this is what the opposition will already say about an assault weapons ban, but it is very far from the truth. Well, that, that's a good point. And I think our party is known for not being the greatest with marketing messaging. We don't know how to craft the right bumper sticker. Defund the police is, to me, an example of that. You know, they want police reform, which is highly warranted, but it gets lost in the messaging. I recently had Dan Goldman, my congressman from New York, on, and I said to him, So you were sitting back, enjoying your life, and then you looked at Congress and you said, hey, that's a cesspool I want to get into. Like, What was your process when you were sitting back going, should I enter this craziness? Maybe Marjorie Taylor Greene's not so bad. Maybe she'll be easy to work with. Well, she was the furthest from my mind when I was making my decision. I'm sure. You know, my decision was very much based in my personal story and my community. I... So, you know, at the time, I'm the National Organizing Director at March for Our Lives. It's my second year. Um, I was actually getting ready to move because we had moved our headquarters from Parkland to Brooklyn. So I was actually getting ready to move to New York. And then COVID hit. And um, before COVID hit, wait, oh, I'm messing up timeline. Sorry. COVID hit. Yeah. And then I stayed in Orlando. And then in early 2021, you know, some friends that I had protested with during Black Lives Matter, you know, I was arrested and tear gas mace and went to jail. And um, some of those friends had casually mentioned to me that I should think about running for for office and in Congress being one of those options. And I remember exactly what I told them because it was two simple words. I said, hell no. And then I moved on with my life. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes people say something that plants a seed in your mind. And months later, I, you know, kept thinking about it. Yeah, what if I did run? Like, what would that look like? You know, and I went like, will people believe in me? And uh, what changed everything for me was connecting with my biological mother. Mm-hmm. At the time, I had never spoken with her in my life. Not because I had that, you know, opinion of her, but because I just, I honestly didn't feel the need to. I had my parents, had my life, and I was very happy and content. But I was at this crossroads in my life, and I felt like I, I do need to connect with her and learn her story. And learning her story solidified my politics more than I could have ever imagined. You know, hearing about the fact that I was one of multiple siblings, hearing about the life that she lived and the trouble she went through, not because she's a bad person, but because she was a woman of color born in a zip code that had been forgotten about by the government. 
um, hearing about she didn't have health care when I was in the womb. And the thing that really got me was, and this has to do with specific wording, about six years ago, I saw this Dr. Cornell West uh, lecture where he said, you know, you got to see the world through the eyes of the most vulnerable. And that phrase stuck to me like glue. And it's something I would always tell my staff and tell everyone I knew. And uh, I'm on the phone with her at the end of the conversation. She goes like, hey, you know, I just want you to know I had you at the most vulnerable point in my life. And hearing her say those words, mm-hmm. connecting to, you know, someone I had never spoken with in my life, saying those words, talking about healthcare, gun violence, um, um, uh, criminal justice, et cetera, not through here is policy I think you should pursue, but here's my life and what I've been through, um, just solidified everything I believe in and why I'm proud to be, um, you know, a progressive Democrat from from Florida um, and that that wants the work done gun violence. It was so connected to my biological mom's story. I, I hung up the phone and said, I'm, I'm running for Congress. And... Um, and then the rest is history, I guess. Wow. That's an incredible story. You're 26 years old. You were elected when you were 25. You're a young male person of color. People on the other side, they're not used to young mm-hmm. people. They're not used to Gen Z. They're not used to people of color speaking up for issues that benefit young people of color. Um, yeah. Have you encountered anything weird in Congress in terms of either a lack of respect or not taking you seriously or just... To some people, maybe like old Chuck Grassley, like, are you a pain in the ass to these old white dudes who don't want yeah, yeah, much yeah. change in America? Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, I would assume I'm a pain in the ass to a good amount of them. Uh, but also, you know, um, as far as respect on the Democratic side, at least, I mean, I feel like I've been fully respected um, and I've been able to maneuver and I hold various leadership positions and different caucuses um, that, you know, are, are highly respected. And, and I feel like, you know, I'm able to do my job and no one's docking me because I'm young. I have to give credit. You know, there are a lot of members who came before me who kind of went through the gamut because they were young and challenged power at a young age and had a hard time getting in here. I think about AOC or I think about Richie Torres with being in the Black Caucus and the Hispanic Caucus. And so, you know, folks like them were able to really make it so that way it would be easier for people like me and younger people in the future. You mentioned the debt ceiling before. This is, to me, another notch in Biden's belt. Such an enigmatic presidency in so many ways. You know, you have a lot of people on the right who are attacking him for his age and his lack of mental acuity or whatever. And I think they do that because they don't really have much else to attack him for. Then you have people yeah. on the left, in particular on the progressive side, who rightfully want to see an America someday that is represented by a president who's more like them, you know, younger, someone of color, perhaps, or both. Um, yeah. Where do you stand on Biden? People say he's the most productive first-term president in modern history. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I mean, he's the most progressive president in modern history, too, and I think you know, a lot of times in politics and in life, you have the old multiple truths, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like to start off telling people, you know, in the primary, I worked for Bernie Sanders. I traveled the country with him and produced rallies. That's, you know, where my politics is. Um, and I've, you know, especially these first two years, been very pleasantly surprised with the wins the president has put forth. I mean, if you look at Build Back Better, um, that is one of the most 
aggressively progressive pieces of legislation and frameworks put forth by a president since FDR. Did it pass? No, a lot of it did get passed into law through different avenues. And he also set a standard for our party. Now, from now on, we can look at future candidates and say, all right, build back better. That's the that's the floor. President Biden put that forth. What are you going to do to continue that tradition of excellence? And I think that's really important. Do I want to see younger people in politics? 110%. But you have to weigh multiple things. You have to see where we're at, who we have in the White House, the wins we've gotten from the Chips and Science Act, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, the infrastructure um, law, and future things will pass when we take back the House uh, in a year. Um, I feel very confident. I'm on the President's Advisory Committee for his re-elect campaign. And I'm on it for a couple of reasons. One is to, you know, I want to make sure that I push the campaign to really focus on messaging with young people and that I go out and talk with young people about the wins that the president's had and how electing him, someone who will actually listen to us versus someone like DeSantis or Trump is a no-brainer. But on top of that, you know, working with the president, having a good relationship with him to, you know, encourage him to stick to his values in those first two years in office. And I think, and I think he will. Um, and so I'm excited about this upcoming election cycle because I think it's a good opportunity to build power. I'm also very focused on local elections. I just today endorsed the candidate Stephanie Banos um, running for school board in Central Florida. There's an all-out attack on, in Florida on the school boards. It's really our front line. We're going to do a lot to fundraise and, and knock doors for those candidates, but it's also connected. And um, And I think the president has surprised me and I think a lot of progressives with his great agenda and how much he's gotten done. As someone working on the, the re-election, are you as shocked as everyone else that Biden's opponent is likely going to be Donald Trump again? Um, no, I'm not shocked. Um, you know, I think when Trump lost, the first thing I think I looked at someone and I, I, looked, I was with my girlfriend, I was like, he'll be back. He'll be back. He's, he's going he's gonna to challenge him again. And uh, so we'll see what happens. I mean, I think I think Trump will end up being the nominee unless something crazy happens in this, you know, pending litigation with him. And I think he'd continue to run from jail um, if he went to jail. Oh, absolutely. But uh, yeah, but 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 we'll have to see what happens. Um, you know, I think obviously his greatest opponent in the primary is DeSantis, but I feel like he's just crashing and burning all around and. I'm not sure he'll be able to keep up, but I don't make these predictions anymore because I've always been wrong. So I don't know. But what I do know is we'll have President Biden as the nominee and uh, and we have a lot of work to do. By the way, did you say DeSantis or DeSantis? I just want to make sure. DeSantis, yeah. Are you using it correctly? <laughs> it's winner. <laughs> when you go into the voting booth, don't think DeSantis, think winner. Actually, right, right in. in winner. Exactly. Right in winner. That's a genius <laughs> campaign ad. Well, we might see an ad from Trump where he takes that clip and says, write in winner if you're going to vote for DeSantis. D winner. <laughs> um, another issue that I know is important to you is immigration. Why can't America fix its immigration problem? You know, this is an issue that Congress really needs to step up and fix, and um, and it and it hasn't. Um, and there's just, we you know, we were just talking about this the right wing picking issues, making themselves the protagonists in the story. And the whole what's going on at the border and then immigration in general is one of those. It's one of their you know talking points. You can't be in an oversight hearing. I sit on the oversight committee with we can be an oversight hearing about anything, Hunter Biden's laptop, anything. And I will hear at least five or six times from the other side the border brought up 
and Biden's border crisis and Biden's immigration crisis. The fact of the matter is, I have criticisms for both Democrats and Republicans on immigration as far as the treatment of immigrants, but the president is we're operating off of laws that haven't been updated in generations as mm -hmm. far as immigration is concerned. Right. And so Congress needs to fix that, um, and the right wing doesn't want to fix it because they want the problem there. And why do they want the problem? Because they want to be the protagonist and the story to their voters. And if we fix this problem by integrating a humane immigration system, they might not have that anymore because it will actually work. Um, and so I think that's a big thing. It's, it, you know this too, and, and to your listeners, it all stems down to politics. And that's the very unfortunate thing with our government is a large percentage of what people do in the halls of power have everything to do with how they get back there in less than two years. Right. And that's where, you know, you see a lot of people think about that when they're voting and how they vote or what they do. Because you guys get elected and the first thing you got to do once you put your pencils on the desk is start raising money for your reelection. And the, the focus on fundraising and campaigning, uh, the whole system needs to be overhauled. There's no I, logical reason it, why a senator gets six years and a congressperson gets two, and a president gets four. Explain the math on that. Exactly, and this is part of the reason. I always like to point, if you look at the Senate, the Senate's very interesting. I have some people would classify radical opinions on, on, on the Senate, how it's not really a democratic body. However, if you look at the Senate, because they have six years, when you look at these members, each one of them have very interesting ideologies. If you look at the Democrats, that on certain issues are very left, on certain issues might be a little different. And I think the Senate really gives people an opportunity to be their authentic self because they're not necessarily as worried about what they do, you know, in their first two years affecting their election later. They are, they want to be reelected, of course, but I think the Senate, because of that longer term, you get to see people's authentic self a little more. Maybe they're more left on one issue, maybe they're more center on another one, and they're very vocal about it. And I think that's a model that I think we should have in the house because most of what people do here has everything to do with getting back here. It's it's like the dog chasing the tail. A senator at least has time to settle in, find his or her footing and gain traction and yeah. see things through. But then the other thing is if you want to really slam your head against the wall, look at the Supreme Court. Life, right? Like that's yeah. it. You're just there for life. So it doesn't even matter. Yeah. What, what, I'm not sure that's right either. No, <laughs> no. It's like I'm sure it's not right. Um, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The last issue I want to ask you about uh, is also another complicated one, which is Israel. I know you've had some uh, evolution over time about uh, various things. Where do you stand these days with BDS, the boycott, military aid, the whole issue of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? Well, you know, I'm for a two-state solution. And so for me, all the kind of subsequent policy that comes from that has to be rooted and pointing towards that. So I'm very vocally someone who believes that um, everybody, no matter who they are, no matter where they live, deserve to live free um, without fear of bombs or violence or anything like that. And that's for our Israeli brothers, sisters, and siblings. And it's also for our Palestinian brothers, sisters, and siblings. And so um, I believe, you know, things like Iron Dome, I think are, are important. Um, so people could stay safe in their community. I, I'm also very anti, um, ex, you know, the uh, settlement expansion as well. Um, and I think, you know, both, both, things like that work against peace in the region. And, and I think the United States needs to play a big part in that and ensuring that um, 
people from all sides of this issue, you know, can really come together so we can achieve that two-state solution. But it seems like every year, you know, both Palestinians and Israelis um, feel like that solution is further and further out of reach every year that goes by. And, and it's really unfortunate and difficult situation. Well, Jared Kushner was supposed to fix it all, and apparently he didn't, unless I missed the memo. He had a plan. <laughs> they had a plan. They never told anyone what the plan was, but like they had a plan. It was a great plan. Amazing it's a great plan. plan. There you go. So my absolute last question, we here in the back room, we like to get a window into people's souls. And one of the ways to do that is through music. I think we're both drummers. I think I read that you're a jazz Oh, wow, player, yeah, so yeah. We, we got the sticks in yeah. common. So give me your top five artists of all time. Um, oh, okay. Well, my top artist is Stevie Wonder. I would say my second is like my favorite band in 1975. I would say the Beach Boys... Patrick Lamar, and I'll say, because I'm looking at her record right now, I'll say Carol Kay. Carol Kay? <laughs> no. That's, yeah, look at her record right now. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, oh, yeah, you have a Carol King yeah. screensaver on your computer? No, I have uh, records. Oh, uh, so you got the vinyl. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly, around my office. So here's oh, look at Tash that. here. She actually came into the office a few weeks ago and she signed it. So that's awesome. Uh, so tapestry, there you go. All right. And did you go see Tay Tay? I didn't see Tay Tay. I wasn't able to get you know Tay Tay tickets. Um, I didn't. I also didn't try. But uh, I do want to see her though. I mean, you see all the hustle and bustle online. It's like you feel that FOMO. I love shows. I'm not a huge. Tay Tay fan. I do love. There are a lot of her songs I really like, and she. Uh, a lot of her songs are on my warm-up playlist for when I play drums. Mm -hmm. um, so I would love to go see one of her shows, but I don't I don't think this time will work out. Yeah, well, there's always next time. Congressman, you are one very impressive young man. I was thinking earlier before we started, like, what the hell was I doing when I was 25 or 26? And it concluded that I wasn't uh, making the world safe for men, women, and children. So my hat's off to you. Yeah. Keep up the good work. I hope you'll come back and uh, talk to us again. Thank time. you. Take care. That's episode 80. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446, email us at backroomandy at gmail.com, or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. It's also very helpful if you subscribe or follow us, and this way you'll know whenever we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Congressman Maxwell Frost. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.